For it is by grace you are saved through faith, not of yourselves, but it is a gift of God. Ephesians 2.8 Welcome to Grace Bond Ministries. Hey everybody, uh, welcome to this podcast of Grace Bond Ministries. Uh, powerful doubt and simple apologetics. Uh, I'm going to explain more what I what I mean by that here in just a second. Uh, but it's been a while since I've done a live video and a podcast, and uh, this is a message that I preached last night to the youth at my church, and it, I think it's a very powerful message, and uh, it's also just uh, a little bit of the story of my, uh, a little bit of the story of my testimony. Uh, so, <clears throat> if any, if you know me, you know that while I was in high school, my my uh my mom had passed away and after she had passed away uh, i went into a period of depression and uh all, all sorts of all sorts of things and uh, i was backsliding a little bit uh whatever and toward, during that time uh i was uh i never really got to the point where i thought <clears throat> i never really got to the point where i thought uh you know, that I was angry at God. I never really felt angry at God, uh, but I did doubt God. Uh, I doubted, it started with doubting his decisions and, and, you know, why would he decide to do that like he did? Or uh, <clears throat> start with, it is either against his decisions or it was against, uh, and, and, then it, and then it started becoming where it was against, you know, does God even exist? How can I trust these things? Uh, all sorts of stuff like that. And, and it was a it was a very difficult time, and there wasn't many people. For one, there wasn't many people who had the answers I was looking for uh, that were around me. But there's also, and maybe you face this yourself, there also wasn't many people who uh, I could even ask some of these tough questions for. Uh, and I think a lot of people don't know the answers, so they always say, "Well, you need to have faith," and uh, then they get get a little uh, uncertain and doubtful themselves when they start thinking about questions and so they get uh, very aggressive with their responses and uh, that was typical that's typically what happens you know when you ask people questions and stuff like that um, <clears throat> but I'm, I'm not like anymore and that's because I went to Bruton Parker after I got called into the ministry I headed over to Bruton Parker and I still was struggling with these doubts okay and I'm over here about to be a pastor and I started pastoring my freshman year but I started having these doubts, but they weren't powerful enough for me to give up my faith or anything like that. But they were powerful enough for me to question my faith. And uh, what ended up happening was I came to school and I met some really great Christian people. And they weren't just really nice and loving and kind. They were also very intelligent Christian people. And the more I talked to them, the more I studied um, the more questions I asked, I mean, sometimes in class, I'm sure I probably sounded like an atheist with the way I asked questions and stuff like that, or at least in my head, the questions I was asking made me feel like an atheist, but, uh, <clears throat> I was asking all these questions and uh, all this stuff and keep in mind, I, I have full 100% believe I was a Christian during all this time. Uh, but I kept asking these questions, kept asking these questions and so forth. And eventually uh, eventually what happened was I started finding the answers to these questions. I listened to 
Christian apologist. I listen to my professors, my friends. Uh, I listen to atheists and other religious leaders and seeing what they were saying, how they were responding. I uh, listened to debates on YouTube. I uh, read a lot of material uh, online, in books, whatever. I'm not much of a book reader, but I read a lot of material. And uh, I've heard what all everybody has to say. And before long, it became pretty clear to me that Christianity has the logic. I think Christianity has the logic more than any other, uh, not just any other religion, but any other worldview. I think Christianity has the logic. And that's because I spent this period, this time period of doubt in my life, and I began to study and to think and to be critical and um, <clears throat> all these things. And so eventually what it ended up doing is God used my doubt to give me the knowledge that I need to help other people. Uh, with their doubt, with their questions and things like that. Because if you're thinking of a question against Christianity, uh, you know, I've probably thought about it long before you did. You know, I, I'm one of those people, I'm not going to get offended. You could you could ask me a question, I tell you my answer, and uh, you completely disagree with it, I still won't be offended. I mean, I think you're wrong, of course, but uh, I still won't be offended. And a matter of fact, there's some things I could still be wrong on. Uh, but there are certain things that I'm very confident in. And so that period of doubt really started coming to an end. Uh, during my time at college and, and just interacting with atheistic ideas and other religious ideas and, uh, and coming up and seeing if Christianity could defend itself or not. And so uh, I spent time doing that, started dealing with doubt. But you know what's funny is when we have doubt, uh, our doubt it doesn't, uh, our doubt doesn't take as much evidence as the evidence that we seek to know if something's true. Uh, I don't know if that made any sense, but what happens is the uh, uh, <clears throat> when we doubt something, right, there can be somebody could throw one single question at us, and that one question could be enough to make us doubt everything we believe, right? Yet if you had one line of evidence, you know, if I had just one line of evidence for like the resurrection of Jesus, right, if I could actually prove that the disciples really did, were killing, were letting people kill them over this belief, that Jesus was resurrected from the dead, uh, if that's the case, and I had that one line of evidence, then that's not going to be good enough for most people, because the doubt we don't we don't require as much evidence for the doubt and and for things to be false that we don't like or we don't want to be true. But when we have something when when there's something that we don't want to be true, uh, we require an extraordinary amount of evidence. And that's like saying it's like me telling one of my friends or something saying, hey. Uh, if you grew to 10 feet tall, then I would believe everything you ever said. <laughs> you know, you can't put the burden of proof to a point where you can't have your burden of proof to a point where it's unattainable. Because uh, that just shows that you're not really seeking truth. You're seeking for your truth. <laughs> you're not seeking for the truth. You're seeking for your truth. And uh, so when we when we and also, you know, you think about sharing the gospel. Uh, we actually ask people to doubt what they believe. Uh, and so if you're a Christian and you've never, uh, doubt might be a kind of a strong word, but at least question what you believe, uh, then you probably don't know what you believe because you're probably just repeating something you've been taught your entire life. And so you probably don't know really what you believe. Um, <clears throat> and we do that when we do evangelism. We ask and we're asking people to put their faith in Jesus. We're telling people that they're sinners and then we're also telling people that their worldview is wrong. Uh, we're telling people that their worldview is wrong. Okay, so 
when we are sharing the gospel, we have to be objective. People will appreciate and recognize when you're being objective. Which, granted, if they're not gonna, if they don't want to believe you anyways, then uh, objectivity, they're just gonna say that you're not being objective either way. But uh, a lot of people, though, if you'll show them that you're objective, you show them the same kind of questions, uh, then then it's it's pretty remarkable. And what's interesting. I've talked, to, I've talked to people who knew the arguments against Christianity and the ones who didn't. And I asked them what kind of evidence they would need. Uh, so, like, the ones who don't, who don't know anything about the arguments against Christianity. I asked them what kind of evidence they would need to believe that Christianity was true, to be shown Christianity was true. And, uh, <clears throat> and they come up with very reasonable things at first. And then once they realize that I have arguments for the easier things, that they just mentioned, then they up the ante, and then they say, uh, <clears throat> that's a poker term, probably shouldn't say that, but uh, they up the ante, and they say, well, actually, no, this is the amount of evidence that I need, or this is the uh, the strength of the evidence that I need, and so they up it once they realize you can answer the original questions, uh, and so obviously there's there's issues with that, and it goes to show that some people just don't want it to be true. That's why a famous apologist, Tom Gilson and Tim McGrew, they said one time in a presentation, I'll never forget, they said, make people wish Christianity were true and then show them that it is. Make people wish Christianity were true and then show them that it is. Okay. I'm going to go, I'm gonna, now I'm going to talk about a few simple apologetics things. So let me read these verses first. Jude one twenty two. all right, if, if you're a Greek scholar or you just, pick up multiple Bible translations, and you look at Jude, verse 22, there's only one chapter, and you're going to realize, and not just 22, but all of Jude, that there is some very difficult translation issues in the book of Jude. Uh, and Jude 22 is no different. So the King James says it a little different, but uh, I trust more of the modern translations simply because they use had more manuscripts to work with than the King James did. So I don't think the King James you know, purposefully did anything bad or anything like that. They did the best with what they had. Uh, and now we've discovered more manuscripts since then. So uh, some of the newer translations, and I'm using the CSB here, I think they've got this a little better, but the, the Greek is kind of ambiguous on it. Uh, but the verse says in the Christian Standard Bible, and have mercy on those who doubt. Have mercy on those who doubt. And then John 14, 6, you probably know this one. It says, Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. So, um, and, and the, the definition of doubt is this, a feeling of uncertainty or a lack of conviction. So maybe you're feeling that level of uncertainty, or maybe you're just, you're like, ah, I think it's true, but I'm just not really, not really convicted that it's true. It's not really, not enough to the where I would, I would change my way of thinking about it. All right. So here's the first one. <clears throat> I see this one online a lot. I've never actually had anybody tell me this in person, uh, probably because it's very insulting. And uh, people know that it's insulting. Um, but people will say this all the time. They'll say, uh, belief in God is no different than believing in a spaghetti monster. That's the one they like to go to. Or you could say uh, whatever other God or God-like figure you'd want uh, in that statement. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to share a couple of um, – I'm going to share a couple of – arguments for the existence of God, and they're going to be really brief. Uh, don't send these over to Richard Dawkins or anything like that. Uh, 
because he will tear these up. But these are really brief, and it's really meant more for somebody who thinks there's no evidence for Christianity or a Christian who's struggling for their faith, okay? So this is just the very basic stuff, and I'm not even getting into many details about it. Just know that these are the things I believe are true, and these are the things I think defend the faith. All right, so I'm going to go through these a little quickly. The first one is the cosmological argument. Uh, cosmology, that's the science and study of the universe and its origins, all right? Uh, and cosmologically, through through um, <clears throat> second law of thermodynamics, there's a couple of things. Uh, the second law of thermodynamics is one. Uh, there was the Hubble telescope noticing that the, the uh, I believe it was the planets or, uh, or uh, light, I can't remember. Uh, but it, it's outlined in Frank Turk's book, but he, he labels it as surge. But anyways, the point is that scientists, and this is even, this is known among atheists now, that scientists believe that the universe, they finally admit that the universe had a beginning. And this is pretty big because scientists used to say, uh, at least most of them to my knowledge, used to say that the universe was an infinite regress. And so it, there was infinite starting points, infinite. So if there's infinite and never really had an actual starting point, um, there's just an infinite regress of the universe. Uh, but the the science of today, modern science has shown us that we actually, that the universe actually has a beginning. Uh, that's what the modern science shows us. So they've had to throw out that old idea because science changes all the time, really. And they had to throw out that idea. And they, they now that there's this idea that the universe had an actual beginning. And this is huge because if, if it had a beginning, then it had, then something had to begin it. And then that we're still stuck on this origins question. So what began the universe if it actually had to have had a beginning? All right. If time and space and matter had to have been created, all right, they had to have been created. And I'm sure they don't like using the word created, but they had to have come in existence somehow. Uh, what this, 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 what this means is that whatever came before the universe had to be something that was uh, timeless spaceless and immaterial and if you were to ask me how I would describe the actual being of god you know what i would say i would say god is timeless he's spaceless and he's immaterial uh and so we start seeing even in science before you even look at the bible this is the natural revelation of the world that shows us god we notice and see that god is uh that god is necessary not that that god really is necessary for things to begin but that the creator of the universe, whatever created the universe, had to be timeless, spaceless, and immaterial, and that fits the the uh, that fits the character of God perfectly. And it also means that whatever created the universe had to have unimaginable, uh, had to be unimaginably powerful to be able to speak things into existence. Uh, and and if this is God, which it seems to make more sense that. There was a creator that created something. There's an old argument called the watchmaker argument. You know, if you're walking in the middle of the woods and you saw a watch in the middle of the woods, nobody's going to walk up to you and say, wow, look at the look at the uh, evidence for evolution in this watch and how this watch evolved and ended up in this wilderness. No, you're going to say, man, I wonder who dropped their watch that they that somebody else created, they bought or whatever. But you're going to say that that watch was actually created. Uh, so it makes a lot more sense to say that God created and not only does it make more sense like that, it also makes more sense because, uh, and we'll get to some of this other stuff, but because the universe 
had a beginning. There was it doesn't it just doesn't make sense that this stuff could happen by chance. And it surely doesn't make sense that something could come from nothing uh, without any supernatural uh, supernatural uh, part in that. You see, so I think it makes a lot of sense. And if God made the choice to create, that also means that we have a God who is a personal God. He's not an impersonal God that created the world, you know, and he he actually was he actually was able to uh, make choices and he made the choice to create, which shows that he has to be a personal God, a personal creator. So, of course, we know this verse, Genesis 1, 1, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And in Psalm 148, 5, it says, let them praise the name of the Lord for he commanded and they were created. So God literally spoke things into existence. That's how powerful he was. All right. So that's the first argument. The second one is the teleological argument. Um, this is the study of the design and the uh, the purpose of creation. And um, this is pretty simple. You go out, look around you, look at yourself and realize that you have a purpose. Realize that the, the there's these intricacies in the world, uh, all these things that work together so smoothly. Uh, you think about just the, the food chain, you know, how the food chain works and how all these, the animals eat the plants and all this stuff and the, and, uh, the, and then other animals eat those animals. And there's this food chain that keeps the, the earth going. And there's this pretty spectacular thing that happens every single day with how uh, the earth functions and all the things that happen in the earth that keep it going, that keep it, uh, that keep it good. And so there's also this argument called the fine-tuning argument, and I don't remember all of the details of this, but I do remember, uh, and I don't remember the numbers at all, but I do remember, you know, the like the, like this is one of the the details of the fine-tuning argument, and the fine-tuning argument basically says that the the universe and humanity, and animals, everything in the universe is created and so fine-tuned uh, that it's illogical to say it happened by chance. Um, and so like the fine tuning argument, one of them is the distance of the earth from the sun. If the, if the earth was a little bit closer to the sun, it would be uninhabitable. Uh, if the earth were a little farther, I mean, it's not much, not much closer, not much farther. It's at a perfect distance. If it were just a little bit farther from the sun, then, uh, then the, the earth would be too cold. It would be uninhabitable. So, uh, the, just the distance of the earth from the sun, that's just one of them. There's other things as well. Uh, that keep our that keep our heat life going, and what you basically see is that there's a purpose for all this stuff. There's a purpose and a way everything intertwines. There's a purpose and a way everything goes together. You know, you don't have to be a brilliant scientist to realize that uh, animals have different purposes and different abilities than human beings do, and human beings are a lot more intelligent than than most animals, or than all animals. <laughs> all right. Listen to a couple of these verses here. This is uh, Psalm 139, 13 and 14. It says, For it was you who created my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I will praise you because I have been remarkably and wonderfully made. Your works are wondrous, and I know this very well. Psalm 19, 1 through 3. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the expanse proclaims the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour out speech. Night after night, they communicate knowledge. There is no speech. There are no words. Their voice is not heard. And so you start seeing that there's this, that the universe around us, we see the purpose, we see God in it all uh, and everything around us. All right, so then we get to the moral argument. Uh, and this is, you know, to have objective morality, all right, to have objective morality, God must exist. 
if God does not exist, then morality just comes from uh, within us, okay? So if there is no God, then our morality comes from uh, within us, and it means it's subjective morality. And if we have subjective morality, then that would have to mean that we could never tell anybody else anything that they were doing is wrong. Uh, so like when Hitler was killing millions of Jews, if if everything, if if subjective morality was true, then nobody has the right to tell Hitler uh, what he's doing. You take the issue of homosexuality, for example. Uh, a lot of people subjectively think that homosexuality is not morally wrong uh, or ethically wrong. Um, <clears throat> but it, you also, people will say that, but then you say, okay, well, because they say they're born that way or whatever. And then you say stuff, and then what if a pedophile walks up to you and a pedophile says, uh, a pedophile says, this, I was born this way. Why don't you just let me do what I want to do? You, don't, you have no right to tell me uh, what's right or what's wrong. Uh, so, so then we start seeing that there is problems with objective morality. And somebody asked Robbie Zacharias one time what his problem with objective morality was and, or subjective morality. He said, well, do you lock your doors at night? Because if we really trusted the subjective morals of other people around us, we wouldn't be worried about anything. You know, so there, there's this, there's obviously an objective standard. We all know that murdering the innocent's wrong. We all know that. Uh, the then, you know, we start, you know, saying that this person's not in, like Hitler. You know, these people are not innocent. You know, uh, so you can twist the, the, those moral principles and things like that. But there has to be these moral standards out there, and if, and they have to be outside of ourselves. They have to be objective. They have to be outside of the individual, and uh, that's where God comes in. Because without God, there could be no objective. Uh, moral lawgiver, because if there's objective morals, there has to be a moral lawgiver, and the moral lawgiver obviously would be God. It fits perfectly. Uh, it fits perfectly for God. And not only is it this, not only is it, is it uh, a defense of God, but it also shows us stuff about God. It also shows us that He is the absolute. Um, he is absolutely morally pure and uh, perfect, because every bit of good, every our standard of good comes from Him. Uh, it has to. It has to come from him. And he has to be the ultimate standard. And this is actually written in Scripture. Now, remember, I just talked about that without looking at Scripture. Uh, but it says in Romans 2, 12-15, For all who sin without the law will also perish without the law. And all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For the hearers of the law are not righteous before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. So when Gentiles who do not by nature have the law do what the law demands, all to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. Their consciences confirm this. Their competing thoughts either accuse or even excuse them. So the objective moral standards of God are on the hearts of every single individual. And the first thing is like, well, obviously not, because like you take abortion. You know, we're, we're trying to figure out is abortion morally wrong or morally right? Uh, but the moral principle there is that we shouldn't kill the innocent. We shouldn't kill innocent human beings. And the argument is not really moral; it's ethical. It's it's uh, and it's it's actually scientific, really, uh, trying to determine is this or is this not an innocent human being. All right. So if if the debate comes down to that, and that's really what it does, uh, debate comes down to that, then we realize that there is an objective moral, and the objective moral is that murdering the innocent is wrong. Yeah, we're just disagreeing on if we think this is an innocent human being or not, and or is it a human being or not. So when I worked at this uh, store called Thriftway, um, I had a guy walk up to me when I was trying to work my own business. He walked up to me and said, uh, hey, Jonathan, i got a question for you. And uh, when you're a pastor, people do this all the time. They'll say, 
oh, you're a pastor. Well, let me ask you something. Um, this guy walked up to me. He said, why do you believe the Bible if it was just written by men? Uh, it's a very valid question, a question I've asked myself. You know, why don't I trust this Bible? All right, so the Bible is 66 books, and it's written by over 40 different authors, okay? Um, and what you see is if you just picked up the Bible, right, and you read from Genesis to Revelation, from beginning to end, what you're going to see is uh, you're going to see the most amazing piece of literature that's in existence. Uh, there's this awesome battle that takes place between God and this this devil guy, uh, this evil force. And uh, <clears throat> and in the end, the God, the good guy, he triumphs, you know, and there's like ups and downs throughout the whole thing. There's some funny stories. There's some interesting stories. And uh, it all builds up. And it's this story that lasts over a period of thousands of years. Uh, it's a pretty remarkable story if that's all you did. But there's also other things you're going to realize. And you might think some things in the Bible are contradictions, but uh, I've looked at a lot of these supposed contradictions in the Bible, and I don't think I've found one yet. Uh, I think there were probably some translation errors that took place, uh, but they're very minimal. Like, you know, take a like Bethesda. Uh, it's spelled a couple different ways in certain manuscripts. So when it's in our Bible, you know, uh, it, sometimes it can be spelled different ways in the manuscripts or whatever. Um, but if even if you took out all of those, you still have ninety nine point ninety nine percent of all the scriptures. Uh, so you could you could take everything out of there that there was manuscript errors in or whatever. You just take all that out and you still have the scriptures. You'll have basically all of the scriptures. Uh, so it's really not a good strong argument to say the Bible contradicts itself. The argument really comes down to the the supposed contradictions. Are these contradictions? or are these not contradictions and i think most of the time they're they're just talking out of their butts because there's not i don't think there is contradictions like they say uh but what you also see though you'll, you'll see that they're, they're the the entire bible is intertwined and that the authors really don't disagree on much like they really don't disagree and what you also see too when you read the old testament it's going to prophesy there's many prophecies about this messiah figure and then there's ways in the new testament you see that they look back at the old testament they find Jesus in even more places than just those prophecies. Uh, it's quite interesting. It's very interesting to to see that, read that. And uh, but you take those prophecies, like Isaiah fifty three, that says the Messiah is going to come. And in earlier in Isaiah, he he calls him by name, Emmanuel, uh, Prince of Peace, God. Uh, he actually calls him God at one point. Um, but you see these prophecies, and uh, my first thought, when well, this was one of the first doubts I had was, uh, okay, well, they probably just copied down the prophecies. Uh, but all it takes is one conversation with the modern Jew today to realize that uh, <clears throat> how Christians understand the prophecies of the Messiah in the Old Testament is not how the Jews understood the prophecies of the Messiah. Or you look at the, uh, the Gospels in the New Testament, you'll see that the prophecies that are mentioned in that, that are mentioned uh, in the New Testament that have, that have come to pass or been fulfilled, uh, that they're a lot more than just, they're, that they're not just blatantly obvious, all right? So every prophecy in the Old Testament, uh, actually not every single one has come true yet, because some of it is awaiting Christ's second return or second coming. Um, but what you see is that a lot of the prophecies, that, that, that the Jews thought they were going to be literal, uh, more literal, and uh, Jesus came and he fulfilled them spiritually, all right? And the Jews will even tell you that's not enough. So, but what you see is, and this is my point, is that the that the prophecies really weren't copied, and 
and but the, they were they were fulfilled. And it's pretty interesting when you see that, and it makes it almost impossible for somebody to say that uh, he just, you know, he just copied the prophecies of the Old Testament or the the writers of the Gospels copied the prophecies of the Old Testament and made them come true. Uh, but Jesus did; he fulfilled them spiritually in a lot of matters. You know, take for instance, a lot of them thought that Jesus was going to become their king, and that Jesus, as their king, was going to take back over for them. Uh, and uh, destroy the Romans, and he was going to become their king again, and they were going to live and reign in Israel. Uh, but that didn't happen. He came with a new kingdom, but it was a spiritual kingdom, you see, and they weren't planning for that, and neither was the devil. And that's why I think I think that the Old Testament wasn't 100% clear because God tricked the devil. I think God tricked the devil because the devil tried everything he could to stop the Messiah from coming, and then he tried everything he could do to kill the Messiah before his appropriate time, and he failed at both of those things. Uh, so I think the evidence is really there that that the prophecies couldn't just be copied. Uh, but the, I've also heard amazing stories how people have that there's like a supernatural power with the Bible. People have picked up the Bible in hotel rooms and on their way to commit suicide, read a gospel or something like a gospel of John. And they say, that stuff's true. I want to get saved. I don't need to kill myself. Like they literally changed their entire uh, lives around. They changed their entire lives around because of just reading the Bible. It's it's pretty spectacular that the stuff like that happens, that people are, are changed just by reading what's in the Bible. Uh, <clears throat> but there's also manuscript evidence. So we don't actually possess the original text, okay? We don't, we don't have uh, not one copy of the original text. What we have is, is our, our bunch of, um, what we have are a bunch of copies of the original text, all right? And uh, if we were to pass... You know, if we were to pass our, if we wrote a, a book right now, we were to pass it all across the world in uh, multiple different languages, multiple different contexts, and we told them to copy it, all right? So it's a little easier for us today because we can just write and type and all that stuff and put it on a copy machine. But they had a copy by hand, and they did this all across the known world at that time. And uh, what we found out after we've discovered and found all these copies after all these years is that they, they agree on almost everything. I mean, like I said, like the, the differences I was talking about earlier, there's real small differences, uh, but they're not to the point where, I mean, they're to the point where we could throw them all out, you know, all those differences out, and we still have the scriptures, 99.99% of the scriptures, uh, and it's pretty cool. We have thousands of copies that we've compared and contrasted. I haven't, but other people have, and these are all in museums and stuff today. Uh, so there's a lot of evidence that the Bible is not just written by men, and that this verse right here is true. All Scripture is inspired by God, and it's profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. All right. And uh, now we get to the most two most important ones. Uh, this one is: If God is all loving and all powerful, then why does He allow evil? That's the most emotional and uh, toughest question. For people to get past, because it's no longer this is no longer a logical question. This is a this is an emotional question. People are emotionally attached to this idea that God should have made a different decision. And that's a lot what happened to me. But there's this guy. His name's Alvin Plantinga, and he's got what, what is called the free will defense. Um, if you're a Calvinist, I don't know how in the world you get by without having free libertarian free will answering this question. But uh, I think Alvin Plantinga's free will defense is pretty solid. And basically what he says is that it's actually uh, because of free will, because of free will, that is 
Uh, that is why there's evil in the world. And, uh, <clears throat> and so, and, and that, that every evil that happens in the world is not, that there's no such thing as a purposeless evil, that there's no evil that happens that has no single purpose in God's eyes. Okay. And some of that purpose can be short term. So it could be something evil could happen this week, but then something good comes from out of it next week. So it could be short term or it could be more of a long term thing. Like he allows people to have free will so they can freely choose to follow him or him. And uh, he does not force people to go against their free will. Um, and if he does, he doesn't do it very often. We could debate about that another time. But that's the key, though, is that there's free will in every human being. Uh, and they have the choice to follow God or not to follow God. And uh, I actually return this back around. And I'll say that actually God allows evil because he loves us. Uh, and that obviously a lot of people that would really catch him off guard. But it's true because you think about it right now. If you're I mean, I don't know if I guess you could be watching this in prison, but I don't think you are. Um, but, you know, if you're thinking, would I rather be in prison or would I rather, ha rather have freedom like I have now? Uh, you're obviously, I'm going to say, well, I guess I'd rather have freedom than somebody telling me when to wake up, when to eat, when to work, when to go to sleep, and all this stuff every single day. Uh, and so, obviously, it's more loving for God to let us have free will than it is for him to uh, force us to love him, force us to do what pleases him and what's good. Uh, what's, what's good is what pleases him. So, uh, this is why, in, uh, and we see this in Genesis, in the creation account, it says uh, in Genesis 2.16, and the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, for on the day you eat from it, you will certainly die. So it sounds like he's saying you can eat of the tree or not eat of the tree, but here's the gist. This is what he's saying, is you can either obey me or you can not obey me. He gave human beings free will from the beginning of creation when he created Adam and Eve in the garden. He said, you have the free choice to obey me or not to obey me. And if he didn't want to give humans free will, he never would have put that the the tree of knowledge of good and evil in the garden in the first place but he knew he had to give human beings free will and uh and and uh <clears throat> so because he loves us he wants people who if they're going to follow if we're going to follow god that we really follow god and uh and then in second peter 3 9 it says the lord is not slack concerning his promise as some men count slackness but is long suffering to usward not willing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance and so he does that so we'll follow him uh, and we'll be we'll be together with him. So if we have eternal life, we put our faith in Jesus, then we're together with Jesus for all of eternity. All right, that eternity starts now. If you reject God, then you are separated from God. Starting now, it's really starting since you were born, you, re you are separated from God. Um, but you're separated from God, and then that carries over into eternity. It carries over into eternity. And <clears throat> that's where hell comes in, because th that's really what hell is. It's an eternal separation from God. It's the gist. That's the important part of what hell actually is. All right. Uh, so that's why I think is the I think is the best response to the problem of evil. But like I said, um, that's an emotional argument. If somebody's going to talk to you about the problem of evil, you've really got to. You really can't just throw an argument at them. Uh, you've got to talk with them. You've got to listen to them. You've got to comfort them. Uh, there's a lot of other things that go into responding to that. Because nine times out of ten, it's not going to be presented as a logical argument. It's going to be presented as an emotional one. Uh, so be very uh, sensitive to that. And this is the one that you hear most often uh, from atheists and things. Or from atheists that they might even accept a lot of the Bible, but they won't accept this part. You believe that a man was resurrected from the dead? Uh, 
that's a very important objection. That's one that we need to really think about and have an answer to because it's the core of our faith. If you don't believe Jesus resurrected from the dead and you can't be a Christian, then we're still in our sins. Uh, but I don't think it's as, as possible as people make it. Because you think about it, up to this point, if you can prove cosmologically, teleologically, morally, whatever, you can prove of all these other arguments that God exists and that he created the world out of nothing. I don't think it'd be very difficult for God to have power over death in this life where he could resurrect a, a himself from the dead. Uh, and the Bible says that God the, the God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit all work together to resurrect Jesus from the dead. Um, so I don't think it's I don't think that it's, it's impossible for a God that created the world out of nothing to resurrect a man from the dead. Uh, so I would turn around, well, why couldn't he? Why couldn't God resurrect Jesus from the dead? And then you realize it's not because they believe that it'd be impossible. It's because they don't believe in God. So you've got to back up. You know, why don't you believe in God? That's what we need to get down to. <clears throat> but listen to this. So Gary Habermas is a... Gary Habermas is a... Uh, he's a Christian scholar. And he's done the most work on the resurrection than any other Christian scholar in all of history. Um, and what he did was he studied thousands of years, thousands of years of uh, writings on the resurrection of Jesus to see what people said uh, about the Bible and the New Testament mostly. And uh, these are things he says, even among atheists and throughout history, these are the things he says that they all agree on. All right. Now, this is important stuff. Listen to these 12 different things they actually agree on with the scriptures that a lot of people today say aren't even true. Uh, and I just go ahead and tell them you must not be well studied because you are definitely the minority if you don't think these things are true. All right. So here's the first one. Jesus died by Roman crucifixion. He was buried most likely in a private tomb. Soon afterwards, the disciples were discouraged, bereaved and despondent, having lost hope after he was buried. Jesus tomb was found empty very soon after his burial. The disciples had experiences that they believed were actual appearances of the risen Jesus. Due to these experiences, the disciples' lives were thoroughly transformed. They were even willing to die for their belief. Number seven, the proclamation of the resurrection took place very early from the beginning of church history. Number eight, the disciples' public testimony and preaching of the resurrection took place in the city of Jerusalem, where Jesus had been crucified and barely buried short, shortly before. Uh, number nine, the gospel message centered on the preaching of the death and resurrection of Jesus. 10, Sunday was the primary day for gathering and worshiping. Uh, that's important because they really didn't gather on Sunday until they until they believed that Jesus was resurrected on the dead, uh, resurrected from the dead on a Sunday. Uh, and number 11, James, the brother of Jesus and a skeptic before this time, was converted when he believed he saw the risen Jesus. And then just a few years later, Saul of Tarsus, or Paul, became a Christian believer due to an experience of the risen Jesus. <laughs> And so those are 12 facts that are agreed on even among atheists throughout history. Uh, that's pretty important because really then what we're getting down to is, is can we prove that the supernatural is true or not? That's where the real debate comes into uh, because they're not, I mean, they're not going to argue that <clears throat> most atheists are going to say that Jesus, that people don't claim that Jesus performed miracles or that these writers of the gospel or the New Testament believe that Jesus perform miracles. No, they're going to say that they fully believed it. Uh, they're just going to say that just because these handful of people believe it doesn't mean that it's true. Uh, but we have all these eyewitness testimonies from the resurrection. All right. 
And we have all these eyewitness testimonies. And the most powerful thing is, is that there was hundreds of people, hundreds of people. And now to this, thousands of people have died because of the resurrection of Jesus. But it's important then because these people were dying because they themselves said, I have seen, I've seen the resurrected Jesus. And then the government's like, and, and the Jews, they're like, no, you take that back or we'll kill you. And they said, I can't, I can't take that back. And if they were lying and they were going to die, I'm pretty sure they would take it back and say, okay, I'm sorry, I was lying. You know, They're not going to go die for something they don't believe in. Uh, and, and it's also just as ridiculous to say that they were all just brainwashed or they all wanted Jesus to come back so bad that they just, all these people hallucinated that Jesus come back or that they stole the body of Jesus or something of that nature. There's just no evidence for any of that stuff. You can't just say that the, they stole the, the Jesus' body out of the tomb. But what's interesting, though, is that these 12 facts, they all bring it down to, honestly, what happened at the empty tomb? What happened with the empty tomb? And, uh, and that, that debate goes on today, but it makes the most sense to have uh, something supernatural happen that day. Uh, and there's all kinds of other evidence for the resurrection, but these are pretty important ones. Uh, but there was also many lives were transformed because of the resurrection. Just like he said, Paul... Well, he was killing Christians one day, and then he says, I've seen the risen Jesus, and then he becomes a Christian, all right? So this is the guy that goes from hating Christians to becoming one. Uh, so it's just pretty spectacular. And the Bible talks about this, 1 Corinthians 15, 3, For I passed on to you, as most important, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to over 500 brothers and sisters at one time. Most of them are still alive, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one born at the wrong time, he also appeared to me. That's Paul he's talking about. That's uh, Paul writing there. He also appeared to Paul. So it's written in Scripture about all these appearances of the risen Jesus. All right, so here's my last point I want to make before I close. God can use your doubt. God can use your doubt. I don't believe that God forces us to do anything. I don't believe God forces us to doubt or forces us to sin or even forces us to do good things. But what the Bible says is that he can make good come out of any situation. So if you have doubt like I did, uh, now I study doubt throughout the Bible, and the Bible doesn't talk positively about doubt. It's a sin because it separates you from God. Um, but God can use doubt. Uh, but and also when it talks about doubt in the Bible, it really talks about it in more of relational terms, like you believe that God couldn't do something for you or something of that nature, not necessarily his existence. But um, <clears throat> I would suggest, though, that you really don't go the doubt route, that you go the questioning route, not just doubting, but asking questions, uh, asking questions with the idea that you're out to seek after God. And he can use that. He can use your doubt. And do something very powerful in you. Uh, he he made me, God made me more alive than I've ever been. After I studied and I struggled and wrestled with this doubt for so long, for a couple of years. And now he's made me one of the strongest Christians I can ever I have ever been. Because now I feel like I know him more fully because I've studied him in all these different realms. And he stands against any lie that's been put up against him. So maybe your doubt has uh, placed you too far away from God. Maybe you doubt, but you haven't seeked the answers. <laughs> That's what a lot of people do. Oh, I have these doubts. Okay, well, have you studied anything to seek the answers? No. You know, uh, that's on you. That's on you. It doesn't mean there's no answers. It means you're too lazy to go seek out the answers. 
That's exactly what that means. Or you got an emotional reason that you don't want to seek out the answer. But maybe you are, maybe you're facing your doubts today, and you need to tell Satan no more, no more. You're not going to rule my head with these doubts. I'm going to seek after God with everything I've got. I'm going to listen. I'm going to study. I'm going to be objective, and I'm going to find out the actual truth. And I'm going to tell you to shove it. I'm going to tell you, Satan, that you have no place in my life, that your doubts that you've been putting in my mind are about to be over with. You can do that. You can do that today. But all the arguments, all the things that can be thrown at God, they can never stump God. If people have been trying to stump Christianity, trying to stump God for years and years and years and years. And some extremely intelligent people are Christians. A lot of people think Christians are just stupid, you know, but I've known some, uh, there's some very intelligent people throughout history that are Christians. Uh, many, many people are Christians. So you have to ask yourself, though, if the evidence is so obvious, if the evidence is so obvious, then why am I doubting? Or why am I even rejecting Jesus in the first place? If the evidence is that obvious. Why am I rejecting Jesus? Why am I still doubting? you got to figure out what that answer is. Ask God to show you what that answer is. And then you can become closer to God or you can start your relationship with God. And some mighty, mighty, mighty things could happen in your life. But Jesus wants you to know this. He wants you to know this. That he loves you. That he loves you. He loves you even when you have a bunch of questions for him. And uh, I know that better than anyone. Because I struggled with doubt. I went to God with my questions. And uh, God showed up and he showed out answering those questions for me. And once you study apologetics, it'll change your life. You'll see this, all the awesome things that come along with it. All the things that prove the existence of God. And uh, just stump the atheist. Uh, in their arguments and everything they try to say and do and throw at Christianity. Um, but if you're rejecting Jesus, maybe this is the problem. Maybe you just love your sin. Maybe you love your sin more than you love Jesus. Maybe you love your sin more than you love Jesus. Whatever that problem is, whatever it is, you need to figure that out today. You need to figure out why is it that I'm rejecting God? Why is it that I'm distancing myself from God because I'm living in sin? Why is it? Why, why am I using these arguments that no longer have, that no longer can stand against God? Why am I still using those arguments uh, to distance myself from God? So don't do that. Follow God uh, and just seek Him. Just seek Him. And if you have any questions, comments, concerns for me, uh, you send an email to Grace Bond Ministries at gmail.com and I will do my best to answer your questions and we can talk or if you want to debate me a little bit or something about something I said uh, let me know we can schedule that uh, but I just wanted to share this with you I hope this was encouraging and I hope that I hope that little bit of apologetics gets you on fire to study uh, I suggest uh, cross-examined uh, uh, <clears throat> what's it called reasonable faith with William, William Lane Craig, look up Gary Habermas, look up Mike Lacona. Uh, there's a lot of great apologists out there that talk about these kinds of things. Um, so do your research, do some studying, and uh, it, it really will. It will really impact your life. So anyways, thank you for watching, and God bless. And if you're watching on, uh, on YouTube, please subscribe. If you're watching on Facebook, uh, please like and follow the Facebook page. Subscribe to the YouTube channel. And if you're listening on a podcast app, uh, please subscribe on the podcast app and leave me a uh, review. It really helped me. And I'm pretty sure 
the more reviews I get and things like that, the uh, and share share these videos too, if you will. But the more reviews and things that I get, um, more the higher up on the list it gets, a little easier to find for people. Okay, so uh, just please do that. Leave me a review, leave some comments, uh, email me, whatever you need to do. But thank you for watching. God bless. And